Welcome to the One Fish Foundation Fishtails Podcast. I'm Carlos Stoll, president of One Fish Foundation, a sustainable seafood education nonprofit based in Maine. These podcasts feature powerful stories from fish harvesters, fishmongers, chefs, educators, advocates, and others around the seafood supply chain. The first series of conversations comes from Bristol Bay, Alaska, where I interviewed a broad range of personalities from rich, disparate backgrounds. All of them share a common passion for the resource and the salmon and a staunch opposition to the proposed pebble mine at the headwaters of the world's largest salmon run. Today, we're joined by Captain Steve Currian, who lives with his wife, Jen, and two children in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. He fishes for wild salmon with his crew out of Knack in Bristol Bay. Steve and Jen co-own Wilder Salmon, a retail and wholesale business that distributes wild Pacific salmon and other species to customers throughout the Northeast and beyond. Steve's been one of several fishermen who've spoken out against the pebble mine. I interviewed Steve prior to the global pandemic outbreak, but his stories of falling in love with Bristol Bay and the salmon and forming the business and more importantly, answering the primal call to return every year to fish for salmon still resonate. This discussion is of particular importance as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is poised to release its environmental impact statement. The EIS is the critical report that could pave the way for the mine's owners, Northern Dynasty Minerals, to secure the federal permit they would need to proceed. I asked Steve at the outset of the conversation, what brought him all the way from Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania to Bristol Bay, Alaska to fish for salmon? No, it's, it was kind of a pretty interesting road. I graduated from Penn State at the degree in forest management and moved to Idaho. And uh, luckily the guy I was renting off of was a pretty adventurous fella for being in his mid sixties. And uh, he owned a sit net business at Peterson Point there in Naknak. So after nine months of working for the state, my new career, he conned me into quitting that state job and going to Alaska um, to commercial fish because one, it was so much fun, and two, it was super lucrative. Um, they were his words. And uh, so first year we went up there, and it was really small run. Price was 59 cents a pound. And, you know, the movement really had not started into knowing, wanting to know where your fish had come from, this, knowing the source, and nobody was marketing Bristol Bay sockeye outside of just the old standard channels. So we hardly made any money. I think we made 1400 bucks the, the first season. And, and my wife, girlfriend at the time, the uh, guy she worked for paid paid her plane ticket and that was it. So um, it was a bus, but we fell in love with the place and, um, and the fish. So from that, I filleted a bunch of fish on the beach and brought them home for my family. And uh, one of the guys that I worked for back here part-time uh, had a on-farm farmer's market. So we were talking and he said, why don't you bring you know some of those fillets to, the, uh, to my farmer's market on the weekend? And I was like, I didn't even realize you had a farmer's market. What's a farmer's market? And, uh, you know, what is this whole thing about local sustainable foods? 
So anyway, I took the fillets to the farmer's market and they sold really quick. So I was able to um, get with John Lawrence, the head of Leader Creek, um, the owner of Leader Creek at the time. And uh, he was able to get me 2,000 pounds of sockeye fillets to start slinging to customers. And um, so I was running a tree business in the winter, slinging salmon on the side and commercial fishing in the summer. And it just continued to grow from there. What, so what year was it that you, you left college and went up first, the first year? 2002 was the first season. And what in God's name convinced you to come back the next year if you only netted $1,400? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever asked myself that question. I think it was just uh, the, it was such a new place and so wild and um, you know, the scenery, the sport fishing, the wildlife, the salmon run itself. And, uh, it just gave us the opportunity to go back and it was like, let's do it. And we didn't really have anything tying us down. So, um, I went back up to Setnet another season and through that process, they needed a, someone to run a boat. And, um, last minute it was set up that they bought a second boat for their grandson, um, and, and slash stepson, um, father son operation. And, uh, so they couldn't find anybody to run the boat and they asked me and I had experience working in the woods, cutting timber and running heavy equipment. So I said, well, I can run a log skidder and a bulldozer. I think I can run a boat. And, uh, so I got my first shot at running a boat the second season I was up there and it came pretty natural. So it, it worked out well and at that time. Uh, it was it was fun. It was an adventure each year, so it was like super exciting to go up there and uh, harvest salmon, and you know you just didn't know what was what was going to happen. It's kind of like the unknown. De definitely, I mean, in just the two weeks that I was up there, the the scale of everything, um, you know, the un unbridled natural beauty of everything, just the life force of the fish, just parading by um yeah and you got that, to spend some some time out in the wilderness on some remote rivers yeah that was special and i definitely going to be going back <laughs> for that um so how did, did you just sort of grow i mean like when did you you know actually open wild for salmon and you know how did that that just grow organically or yeah, it was really organic. We we just started selling at one farmer's market in 2000 and I guess the fall of 2002 and or 2003, 2002, I guess it was. And um, just doing one farmer's market. And then from there, I was, my wife was, Jen was teaching. I was doing tree business and selling salmon, trying to make that work. So it was kind of like part-time of each. And it just, you know, we kept working at it. And, and at that time, there wasn't a lot of salmon on the market anywhere and locally. So we got invited to more farmers markets. People were inviting us to um, their farm just to sell on site. And it just started to grow from there. And I got connected with the whole Pennsylvania Society for Sustainable Agricultural Movement, which was kind of prime at the time for farmers markets, CSAs, um, buying clubs, all that. And we got interconnected with those folks 
um, and, and met a lot of people in the Pennsylvania region, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, New York. So through a conference there, we really started to kind of branch out and then it just kind of kept growing. What was the sell? Like, how did you sell the fish? Like, did you, you know, did you tell the story of where the fish came from, the special place or, you know, when you were, when you were selling the fish at the farmer's markets, how did you convince people? Yeah, it didn't take a lot of convincing people that, you know, they knew if they, if they heard of salmon, wild salmon or had it ever, they were super excited at the start, but mainly just telling the story, you know, that's what made it easy. We just sold ourselves as fishermen and talked about everything that happened in the season and how good um, the quality of the fish was and how much we like to eat it ourselves. And that was plenty right there to, you know, that was an hour's worth of conversation to any new customer coming along. Sure. And, you know, people already have this romantic idea of Alaska and the remote wilderness. So just that conversation was plenty to, to kind of drive customers to want to buy and want to go tell their friends that they bought salmon from this fisherman guy who spends his summers in Alaska. And so that kind of just, we didn't have to do any kind of marketing, you know, other than talk about the story. So how much has Wild for Salmon grow? Where do you, where do you sell now? Um, you know, it's been, how long has it been fully operational? Um, 15 years. So we're on our 15th year and um, now we have about 60 buying clubs that we deliver to within about 300 miles of our brick and mortar seafood store. Um, we have online store and also a wholesale distribution system that we deliver to and we have about 160 accounts there. So we're, you know, we've grown quite a bit over the last 15 years. And those wholesale accounts are, how, how far distributed are they? Um, I would say that they're within a, most of them are within a 200 mile radius. Mm. And if they're outside of that, then they're in a shipping account where we ship direct to their door and then they take it from there. Yeah. And the, can you explain what a buying club is? Yeah, a buying club is kind of maybe a little bit of an older model that we used when we got started. People were just asking us to um, come to their town and, and have a drop off of salmon. Also, um, we did it as a discount. So anybody that got over 100 pounds in one location, they got a roughly 10% off. And uh, so we used that early on as one of the models to get false sales for in the fall when we got back from fishing and people would you know place orders we would deliver we'd have their boxes their names on them and people would line up and take their take their salmon and run and then then we started doing one in the spring as a restocking event and uh, it's kind of grown from there now i would say that they're they're not as popular as they were you know 10 five or sorry 15 to 10 years ago um, they were more popular people with now, you know, buying online, they would just as well get it shipped to their door and not have to have the inconvenience of going to a place to pick up or pre-ordering. So we're seeing a little shift there. So what's life like on a boat for two, three months out in Bristol Bay? <laughs> I don't know. After 17 years, it just seems like another day in the office, but, uh, 
it's a lot of dynamics to it. You've got um, one being in the remote um, Bristol Bay region of Alaska. You know, you don't have your access to equipment or um, parts or friends and families like you do in other places of the country. So you're, you know, living remote, you're dealing with the weather, the tide, the salmon. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a romantic piece to it of being on the water. I'm sure anybody that spends time on the water would admit to that. And um, living, you know, when you're living by the tide and watching the salmon come in, it just gives you a different outlook on the world that we live in. Kind of takes you back into that hunter and gather state. And how much of that hunter gatherer state is really what brings you back year after year? Oh, that's probably the uh, 95% of what drives me. And being in Bristol Bay, I mean, it's, it's pretty raw. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, I don't know where else you can go to experience that rawness um, in 2019 and, you know, spend two months on a boat just living it day by day. You think is that's what you tapped into that first summer? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I grew up fishing. I love fishing. I love the outdoors. I spend a lot of time in the outdoors and my father was a custom butcher so I kind of grew up processing food so I think there's a combination between one my fishing background to just the love for the wilderness and the outdoors and three the appreciation for food and getting it to people you know supplying people with a source of protein so I just want to tap into that just a little bit more because that kind of speaks to like this, what seems like an unshakable bond to the land, to the water, to the salmon as a resource. Um, so when you have that such a, it seems like it's, it's driven like inside your soul, you know, that's, that's where it, it sort of resides. And then you, you have this sort of backdrop of this, you know, of, the, of this mind, this pebble mind that is like a specter of, you know, what could possibly go wrong. So how do you kind of reconcile that? You know, what, what does it cost to just have to think about that? You know, what does it cost you from an emotional, psychological perspective with, you know, knowing what, you know, what's at stake there, that sort of raw kind of connection to the land? Yeah, I think it's a lot bigger than anyone realizes when you're kind of have that environmental battle looming over your head. It definitely drains you. It makes you think about it. It, it kind of keeps you looking at the news at times to see what's happening. And, you know, the conversation, we get a lot of conversation from customers asking questions, sending news articles, and it keeps, you know, bringing it back front and center. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've spent a lot of time at Wild for Salmon and Pride of Bristol Bay, you know, advocating against the mine and talking to customers. So it's, it takes up a lot of time. Um, I'm actually surprised, and I've reflected back on this just more recently to 
see how that kind of feels and, and how much time is being spent there. How do you quantify that? Is there a way to quantify it? I mean, I don't think there is a good way to quantify it. I think it's one of the disappointing factors with Pebble Mine is, is like how that's affecting all the people that work and live in that region and the, the negative energy that it's causing. There's no way to quantify it or measure it, but it's definitely real. Yeah, it's, it's intense. Um, I guess the one thing that I found with everybody that I've interviewed though is, I mean, the, the small silver lining is that the deep co um, collaboration of different user groups, you know, just unified, unified um, in their opposition to this thing. Um, and hopefully, you know, that kind of being on the same page continues, regardless of what happens with the mind that it, you know, because these are user groups are not always on the same page. Right. No, I think that that's been the, you know, the best thing with social media and uh, new technology, allowing people to communicate. I saw it in the horizon spill in New Orleans, you know, area, that whole being able to collectively pull together lobstermen from Maine and Bristol Bay fishermen and shrimpers and talk about environmental issues and how, how important it is and how big of an issue it is when something goes wrong and impacts a fishery environment. So we've got tons of traction in Bristol Bay and support from other fisheries along with bringing the commercial fishermen and the guide use uh, the sport fishermen grouped together to uh, advocate against the mine. So it's been really interesting to see that. And in the past, that hasn't been the case. What would it look like to you if the mine did go through? Well, if the mine went through, I think that, you know, short term, it'll be, you know, I don't know, a few years out, 10, 15 years out before it gets to any kind of size that can can damage um, the fishery and then over time it'll grow from there fundamentally i think you know the negative impact to just on your mind is going to be the, the biggest thing and then opening it up bristol bay up to a mining district long term you know once the first mine goes through then the area becomes a mining district and then you know the gates are open and you know, looking down the road to our kids' generation and their kids' generation. And I think that's the biggest thing that weighs on me is just thinking about, you know, this snapshot in time when we get to enjoy such a pristine place with such an amazing wild salmon run. And then, you know, fast forward 50 years, 75 years. And, you know, we're, we live right in Pennsylvania, kind of right on the edge of the coal region. So we see firsthand what all the dead streams around here look like. And, you know, ever since I've been a kid, they've been full of sulfur and uh, they're just start, you know, after almost a hundred years, they're just starting to get some, some fish to live back in them. Um, the one particular, some of them are not at all. And uh, I think that that opens up your eyes to what really happens. And when you look around the, the lower 48 and you look at the, uh, where can you eat as many fish as you want, um, pick up any state regulations of sport fishing and nobody says yeah eat as much 
wild fish as you can find, but you can find that in Bristol Bay. And uh, that's the thing that I think a lot of people miss about this is that it is such a pristine place and the fish there, the quality is untouchable, but we're, we're willing to kind of mess that up for short-term gain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a common, common thread that I've heard. You know, it's, what's, you know, what, what's the benefit and, and, you know, against the, the cost and the cost obviously outweighs it. Um, just out of curiosity, because you've been on the water for a long time up there. And I often think that fishermen are really, you know, sort of on the forefront of seeing changes, environmental, ecological changes. What have you seen, you know, in the past few years in terms of changes on the water? I mean, we've had some amazing salmon runs, but have you seen anything that have, you know, stuck out that heralds how things are changing in Bristol Bay and then, you know, all of the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, we've seen warmer water temperatures. That's been the, the leading um, indicator of change. You know, it's just as we use our RSW, our refrigerated seawater systems, we have to pump fresh water on every day. And then we have to use that fresh seawater. Then we, uh, in a closed system, we refrigerate that water, get it down to temp and keep the fish cold. In back 15 years ago, a seven and a half ton system would chill your fish no problem. And you'd be starting with water that was in the 50s. And so your system didn't have to take as much to get it down. And now, you know, we're in the 60s and sometimes 70s in the, the river, in the mouths of the rivers, the surface water is warm. And so it takes more for your system to get it down. And then as you put these warmer fish in the refrigeration system, they, it takes, it's harder to chill them. So everybody's going to a bigger, you know, to nine and a half ton, 10 ton systems, so they can deal with this kind of warmer, warmer fish. So it's, it's a fact that the water temperature is warmer. And um, the scary part this year was, you know, we've been seeing these big returns out of Bristol Bay and, you know, it's kind of probably driven by warm water temperatures, give them a longer um, window of growth in the lakes because the water's warmer and then a better survival rate as they go to the ocean is small. But with that said, now we're starting to see, last year we had days in the, where the river's temperatures were in the 70s and causing the fish to die once they made it up the river. So they made it past the counting towers to be counted as escapement. And then there was recorded die off in you know, some of the rivers. So if the, that trend continues, once sockeye hit about 70 degrees water temperature, they start to suffocate. And whether it's a heart attack or I'm not quite sure what exactly happens to them, but um, I think that's, that's a real scary piece when you look at it as an indicator of what could be coming. Something else to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. And there was also um, the shearwater birds. They're a... Um, mm -hmm seabird and there was a huge die-off this year in Alaska in Bristol Bay and they typically spend their summers out in the Bering Sea um, eating a, a species of creel but something happened that whether it's the warm water but the bloom of these creel is not happening and uh, they either got too weak and got blown off course or I don't think the biologists know exactly but these birds were dying off in pretty big numbers. And uh, 
I think that that's just another indicator that things are changing. That was Captain Steve Curran, a drift net fisherman out of Bristol Bay, Alaska, who co-owns Wild for Salmon with his wife, Jen, from their winter home in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Thanks again for joining the One Fish Foundation Fish Tales podcast. Stay tuned for more updates about Bristol Bay and the opposition to the pebble mine. And also stay safe, everyone. Thanks again. Giant.